Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, and welcome to episode 48 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. One of the biggest myths about money is that personal finance is both complex and difficult. Complex in that there are many moving pieces and there's some math involved. Difficult in that it's hard for someone who already has too much on their mind, someone like you and me probably, that it's difficult for someone to execute a smart, efficient financial plan. The truth is, personal finance is not that complex. It's actually quite simple. But on the difficult part, now, ah, that is a more interesting question. So let's break that down a little bit. Personal finance, I think, is pretty simple in that there's a small number of easy to understand foundational rules with a sprinkling, a small amount of math, but it's middle school math at that. However, personal finance is not easy because while the rules themselves are easy to understand, easy to comprehend, our very human shortcomings often get in the way. And those make personal finance habits pretty difficult to maintain over the long run. So recently I was at a party and someone asked me about the best interest and I gave them my usual answer about loving to write and loving to write about personal finance and investing, helping people with their personal finance and investing questions. And a third person in the conversation piped up and said, You know, no offense, Jesse, but isn't personal finance pretty simple? You know, make a budget, spend less than you earn, invest, keep fees low. You know, once you get past the eight basic rules or whatever it is, then you're done. I don't get how there can be so many blogs, so many books, so many podcasts all about personal finance. They're all just rehashing the same exact thing. It was a great point because yes, personal finance is simple. In fact, I don't even think there are eight rules. There are just three. The first one, spend less than you earn. The second, then you should save or invest the difference. And then the third rule, create safety nets. And we'll get into what those are. Really, that's it. Just three rules. That's personal finance in its simplest form. Even simple books out there like the index card, which is premised on nine rules that fit on an index card, they really all play off the three rules. So here's an example. You know, the nine rules of the index card are rule number one, max out your 401k or equivalent employee contribution. Okay, that's my second rule. Rule number four of the index card, save 20% of your money. Great, that's my first rule, spend less than you earn. So basically everything's a derivative of either spend less than you earn, invest and save the difference, or create safety nets. Pretty much every piece of personal finance advice fits nicely into one of those three rules. So then why is there all of this content, all these blogs, all these books, all these podcasts? There are many reasons why we should all be learning about better personal finance principles. So I'm going to go through a few of those. For example, the 80-20 principle. So even if three rules, my three rules alone, can complete, say, 80% of someone's personal finance repertoire, We need more details to fill in the remaining 20%. That's a good reason for you to read blogs, books, or listen to podcasts. The next reason, the devil's in the details. So how can I spend less money? How can I earn more? 
How should I invest? What's a good insurance premium or a good insurance policy? That's the real pudding of personal finance, and it needs more explanation than three simple rules. Good personal finance content dives deep into those details. Next, peeling back the onion. You know, Shrek, the ogre, he famously quipped, ogres are like onions, we've got layers. Personal finance is no different. Every rule in personal finance has many layers to it. It's subdivided, there are exceptions, explanations, and those deserve someone out there to explain what's going on. The next reason, there are differences at the margins. So assuming we agree on the basics of personal finance, there's still plenty of room for disagreement out at the margins. And lots of personal finance content lives in that space. Should you aim to save 10% of your income, 20%, 30%? What's a low interest rate? What's a high interest rate? How detailed should your budget be? That might be the narcissism of small differences. If you're not familiar with that, it's this idea from Sigmund Freud that says people tend to have very big arguments about very small differences of opinion. And maybe a lot of that is going on in personal finance, but I do think it's important to get into the nuance, get into the margins, and understand the details of these rules that we're talking about. Okay, a big one coming up here, behavioral shortcomings. Even if you can boil down personal finance to three rules or nine rules or 20 rules, whatever the number it is, people still need discipline and consistency to follow those rules. More and more personal finance content these days focuses on behavioral finance, pointing out the all-too-human shortcomings that prevent us from reaching our financial goals. The next reason, different voices. So there's a reason, guys, why Morgan Housel is famous. If you haven't heard of him, he's the best-known current financial writer. And there's a reason why he's well-known and I'm not. He's a better writer than me. Or at the very least, he's got a much different and more appreciated voice than me. So different voices bring new life to old rules, and that helps people learn. So a big reason why I love writing on the best interest, I love talking into this microphone, it's not that I'm inventing new content, but it's that I've got multiple thousands of people who appreciate my unique voice bringing new life to old personal finance rules. The next idea, reinforcement. One of my personal finance friends just passed 100,000 followers on Twitter. He focuses his tweets, every single tweet, on five different statements or five different personal finance ideas. That's it. Every tweet he sends is a variation on one of those five ideas. While that kind of content definitely gets stale, it also serves to reinforce his followers' beliefs. And we know that confirmation bias is a powerful stimulant. While it's not my preferred cup of tea, I understand the content strategy. And clearly, his audience appreciates it. So yes, personal finance is simple. But there's a reason why books, blogs, podcasts, why they're all thriving. There's a reason why a few thousand of you are listening to this. So like Morgan Housel, I write about things that I find interesting, and I trust that some of you will find it interesting too. And as long as that's the case, I'll keep coming back. So let's apply a simple but not easy idea to the biggest rule in personal finance. In fact, I call it the golden rule of personal finance. And there's a cool side note here. 
This article about the golden rule of personal finance, it's proof of this interesting theory in content creation. The theory is that nobody ever knows when something is going to go viral. So I wrote this post pretty quickly. I think I wrote it back in November. I thought it was pretty basic. I just published it, sent it out into the universe and figured it's something on my mind. I'll I'll see how it does. Next thing you know, it got shared on a few popular websites and social media platforms. And it had over 50,000 people read it in a two-week stretch. So that's pretty cool. Okay, the golden rule of personal finance. Now, we're not going to start on finance. We're going to start with the Leaning Tower of Pisa. The Leaning Tower of Pisa has a foundational problem. It's 186 feet tall. It weighs 14,500 tons. But its foundation is built only 10 feet deep, and it's built into silt and clay. About five years after its construction, this was around the year 1178 AD, the foundation of the Leaning Tower shifted, and the tower, quite famously, it leaned. Oops. Now, every building needs a strong foundation, and that rule, it applies to all buildings of all sizes at all locations. It's truly a fundamental, foundational rule of structural engineering. And that brings us to a golden rule of personal finance, one that applies to all people at all levels of income. And that rule is spend less than you earn. Okay, now it's time to shut off the podcast. I get it. You get it. We all know this rule. I know. You think you know what I'm talking about. But in my ever-growing experience in personal finance, most people think they know this idea, but have not truly internalized it. It's a foundational rule we too often ignore. You know, we know the stories of former athletes or Hollywood stars who end up filing for bankruptcy. And we think, how is that possible? Well, it's simple. They spent more than they earned. And then we think to ourselves, but surely someone with $100 million should be able to not spend all their money, right? I get it. But overspending behavior, it's the classic slippery slope. Just as buildings of all sizes see foundational issues, people across the wealth spectrum, all across the wealth spectrum, they struggle with overspending. I have a friend of a friend who played Division I football and eventually made it to the NFL. He actually retired within the last couple of years. But his family growing up was dirt poor, very rural and poor. And he wrote this admission that I thought was very profound. So I'm going to start it with an open quote, and I'll end it with an end quote when I'm done. Quote, we were so poor, there was never much money, but the money that was there, it always quickly disappeared. You got used to this idea that money is scarce and never sticks around. So whenever I got money as a kid, it was like, spend it now, or you might not get another chance to spend it. Boom. And I had this big list of things I wanted to spend money on. It's like the perfect storm. So now I just want to spend everything, save nothing. I don't trust saving because I've never actually seen it work, end quote. So here's a guy making millions of dollars, but his financial foundation was only inches deep, not nearly strong enough to support such a large income. And our brains, just like in this example of the NFL player, our brains often work against us. This is a foundational lesson from behavioral economics. We criticize others for overspending, but we find ways to justify our own similar behavior. We say, if I earned another 20%, then I'd start saving more money. But when that 20% raise comes, we buy clothes that are 20% softer or buy houses that are 20% bigger or meals that are 20% more organic. 
the slope remains slippery all the way down. If you're a global touring music star partying at the club, you justify a $10,000 bottle of champagne. If you're the heavyweight champion of the world, you justify owning a tiger. We all struggle to say, enough. No way, you say. I just don't get it. I'd never own a tiger. Well, you're not alone. I don't get it either. I'm with you. But a few weeks ago, Kelly and I, my wife and I, we spent about $125 on a dinner for two. Pretty nice treat, right? But a big part of the U.S. population would look at our dinner and say, no way, I just don't get it. $125 is a full week of groceries or a month of gas. I'd never spend that much on one meal. A smaller segment of the population would say, you call $125 a nice dinner? How quaint. My point is, overspending and comparison, they happen to all people at all income levels. We all spend money. We all judge others on what they spend. And most of all, we all look at people richer than us and think, if I were them, I'd be all set because I'd never spend money like they do on that thing. Getting back to foundational fundamentals, I don't care what people spend money on. Meals, cars, tigers, although I'm not sure there's an ethical way to own a tiger. Because the key is spending less than you earn, preferably spending much less than you earn. Personally, I ensure I'm doing this through my budget and through net worth tracking. In my experience, most people, including myself at times, we pay lip service to the idea of spend less than you earn. Don't worry, you're only human. It happens to us. But if you want to find financial success, you'll eventually have to back up that lip service with real action. You'll need to dig deep and build a financial foundation that supports your current and future life. On the spending front, remind yourself of this simple truth. First, advertisers convince you that buying stuff will make you happy. And second, actual psychological research provides no such evidence that it will make you happy. In fact, buying more stuff might make you unhappy. You want to spend less? Remind yourself that you've probably been brain hacked by advertising. I know I have. You've been brain hacked into thinking that more spending equals more happiness. Personally, I don't like that I've been brain hacked. I resent it. So out of spite towards advertisers, I actively fight my impulse to spend. And if you'll notice, I don't run ads on the best interest. I don't run ads here on the podcast. And one reason is because I don't want advertisers to brain hack you into spending more money than you need to. It's a struggle. On the personal side, going back to my, myself being brain hacked, I have to dig deep, just like digging a foundation. But if you want to build a strong financial life, that's where it starts, a strong foundation. Spend less than you earn. One more topic today, guys, on the idea of simple and easy personal finance. This idea comes from an article I wrote recently in January, and it's called The Easiest Money That Investors Ignore. So investing is all about risk and reward. We know that. When investors take more risk, they should demand more reward. And one such risk premium is the concept of illiquidity. Liquid assets are easily converted to cash. Stocks are pretty liquid. You can buy or sell them five days a week on the stock market. But real estate, for example, is not as liquid as stocks are. It takes weeks, months, sometimes even years to finalize a real estate deal. 
If you own real estate and you suddenly need to convert it into cash, you can't just do it at the snap of a finger. So investors in those types of illiquid deals, they're taking a risk by locking up their money in a rigid investment for an indeterminate time period. That extra risk necessitates a larger reward. This is the so-called illiquidity premium. More reward compensates more risk. It might surprise you then that liquid assets, those that can be bought or sold quickly, that liquid assets have a major downside too. Millions of investors have lost billions of dollars from this issue. And if you're not careful, it might nip you too. So what's the problem with liquidity? Simple. The mere ability to buy or sell an asset tempts investors to do so at the worst possible times. It's why Charlie Munger says, quote, when Warren Buffett lectures at business schools, he says, I could improve your ultimate financial welfare by giving you a ticket with only 20 slots in it so that you had 20 punches representing all the investments that you got to make in a lifetime. And once you'd punch through the card, you couldn't make any more investments at all. End quote. 20 investments in a lifetime? See, Munger believes that forcing yourself into illiquidity actually leads to better long-term outcomes. That too much trading, that too much liquidity is a bad thing. And that's why Warren Buffett backs up what Charlie Munger just said. Warren Buffett's investment approach is, quote, I never attempt to make money on the stock market. I buy on the assumption that they could close the market the next day and not reopen it for five years, end quote. Five years. Buffett completely ignores the daily liquidity of the stock market. Long-term investors make decisions over years, even decades. They don't worry about days or weeks. When asked how long Buffett prefers to hold a stock, he answers, our favorite holding period is forever. And that's why one of John Bogle's most famous and most repeated quotes is, quote, while the interests of business are served by the aphorism, don't just stand there, do something, the interests of investors are served by an approach that is diametrically opposite. Don't do something, just stand there, end quote. These are legendary investors all sharing the same idea. So maybe we should follow their lead. Illiquidity doesn't bother Buffett or Munger or Bogle. In fact, they view liquidity as an unnecessary tease. Most normal investors like you or I don't understand that fact. Too many of us see the stock market as a volatile casino where short-term timing, whether it's luck or skill, can help us make a quick, say, 5%. And then you rinse and repeat that 5%, 3%, 2%, 5%. Next thing you know, you're rich. But study after study shows that short-term investors, they perform poorly compared to the simple market indices. There's a very, very famous study that came out recently from JP Morgan. And it shows diversification in the average investor, the 20-year annualized return by asset class from 2001 to 2020. So it shows everything from, you know, small caps to high yield to S&P 500 and all that stuff. S&P 500, 7.5% per year over 20 years. A 60-40 balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds, 6.4% per year. And yet the average investor over that time period only saw a 2.9 per year return. Balanced portfolios are returning 6 or 7% per year, turning $1 million into $3.5 million over the 20-year period. But the average investor 
only saw a 3% annual return in that period, turning 1 million into 1.77 million. That's a huge difference. And it's largely attributable to average investors making dumb short-term decisions. Or as JP Morgan's team wrote, quote, why does this happen? Because most investors buy and sell too much without knowing what they're doing. They buy and sell at the wrong time, but they think they are doing the smart thing, end quote. It's the liquidity. Daily decisions to buy or sell hurt our long-term returns. Personally, I've made three or four investment decisions in the past decade. All of those decisions involved buying diversified assets in small increments or dollar cost averaging and holding them for many decades. I was lucky to have read John Bogle and Burton Mulkeel and Warren Buffett before going down the wrong rabbit hole. This is the liquidity premium. It only rewards you if you recognize it and choose to ignore it. And therein lies the rub. Can you ignore the short-term noise, the media headlines, the loudmouth at the office coffee machine, your suddenly rich neighbor who bought Tesla options? Can you ignore them and hold your simple investments for the long term? It's easier said than done, but it's the easiest money investors ignore. And there's a big premium if you get it right. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.